Well, good morning, church family. The past past few weeks, I really feel like the Lord has been uh, just impressing upon me, and I feel like ministering to my spirit about being intentional and aware of his presence. You know, last week we talked about light, and we talked about the idea that God created and that the light came, and we saw that light was good, and then that Jesus himself said he was the light, and that light was the light of men. And then Jesus looks at us and says, you are the light of the world. And then the week before that, we looked at priorities, and we looked at busyness. And I think I shared with you, last week I preached twice. I preached here twice, and I preached up at Teen Challenger on a Friday night, and then I had a wedding rehearsal and a wedding to do. So I was busy. And a lot of you, you're busy. We have things happening, and, and, it's, and it's, it's good stuff. You know, sometimes we're on guard against the bad stuff, but, but we, we can do some good stuff, and we can be busy. But there's a difference, we said, from being busy and being hurried. From being busy, from being filled with activity, and from a sense of, of, of chaos and anxiety and, and just this frustration that we're just not getting things done that we need to get done, and the sense of being hurried. And the difference is recognizing, not just in, a, in, a, in, a, you know, in an abstract way, but concretely recognizing the presence of God. And so I feel like the past few weeks, I've really just been in a place where I've just been aware and reminding myself that he's with me. That he's with you, that your days are going to involve some mistakes. They're going to involve some regrets. They're going to involve some things maybe accomplished and other things maybe not accomplished. But we need to be aware of his presence because if not, see what happens, and you see it in the ministry of Jesus, and you can see in our own lives, is those things that we think are interruptions are really what God has for us in those moments. And if we're not in tune, if we're not listening for the still small voice, we can be building our own kingdom. We can be doing our own thing. And like we've said before, we can often as Christians ask Jesus to follow us instead of responding to his call that we follow him. And so I'm happy to say that these past few weeks I haven't felt hurried. Though filled with activity, I've just had an overwhelming sense of the love of God and the presence of God. And I've prayed and I've had to remind myself, all I can do, all you can do is what we can do. And and there'll be mistakes and regrets, and tomorrow we wake up, and with God's help and his grace, we're going to do it again. But to remember what Christ has called us to, to get an overwhelming sense of the love and the presence of God. Because our lives, our ministries, the way we interact with one another needs to come from a place of an overflow of the love of Jesus in us or we're just doing religion. It's just Christianity is more than than just a, a behavior modification program. And so I want to look at that this morning because it is transformative. I mean, as Willie was praying just about be grateful, it is transformative when we recognize the love of God. When I stop and realize what would make the God who created and sustains the universe, the author of all of this, what would make him want a relationship with me? But he does. He does. Jesus didn't just die so we could have slightly better lives. Jesus died so that the effect of sin in our lives, the effect of sin meaning shame and identity crisis, Jesus died so we could once again come into the presence of God. So we can feel that intimacy with him. You know, and, and, I, and I think about it this way because it always helps me as a father to sort of put things in, in that way. We can do some good things for God. Some really good things. And I'm sure God looks and he's proud of us. And I'm sure he wants to brag on us. Like, you know, that church is doing great things in the name of Jesus. But sometimes I think we can do those great things and Jesus is going, but I want you to sit at my feet. I miss having that relationship with you. 
And so in Psalm 27, 4, and I, I reflect on this often, I think it's just among the most beautiful scriptures, and David says this, and you got to love David's heart. Psalm 27, 4, David says this, One thing I have asked of the Lord. There's a main thing. There's a primary thing. If there's one thing, if there's, if there's something I'm after, if there's something I ask of God, there's one thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire or to meditate in his temple. David's saying the one thing, the main thing that I ask of God, that I will pursue, that I will seek after is to dwell to remain, to abide, to live in the house of God in his presence all the days of my life and to meditate on, to worship, to to recognize his awe and his beauty all the days of my life. It's such a beautiful thing. And so my prayer is that each of us this morning, that that's why we're here. We recognize that we want a word from God that we can apply to our lives. We want practical assistance in everyday life. And and I know that. And the word provides that. But more importantly, God, we come before you this morning. Your children. We trust that you're here. We know that you know what we need better than you do, God. There's nobody here by accident. We're all here by invitation, God, but it's by your invitation. And so, Lord, speak to us. Meet us. Help us to be not just informed, but to be transformed by the power and peace of your presence, God. We simply want to sit at your feet. We want to be changed by you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, statistics, for whatever they're worth seem to continuously suggest that religion or religious life is in decline, particularly in America. You read it all the time. The church is in decline. People are less religious than they've ever been. I mean, they've been saying since Christianity started, since, you know, from the very beginning, oh, you know, in 100 years, there'll be no no more Christians, and religion is dying. Got a couple things I want to say about that. But William Booth, who founded the Salvation Army, made this observation that I think summarizes well. The chief danger that confronts the coming century will be religion without the Holy Spirit, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. See, the religion that Americans are rejecting has nothing to do with Jesus. It's a neutered, powerless, often political ideology. And that's not the kind of church, that's not the kind of movement Jesus came to build. It has no power because it's not centered on Jesus. It's simply a way to live. It's a system of living that's man-centered. It's our attempt to create God in our own image. And people say to me, well, you can't know 100% for certain that God exists. And I'll say, okay, well, you can't know 100% for certain that he doesn't. But let's pause that for a minute. Here's what I am 100% certain of. That God doesn't exist in our image. That the God we create in our image, which is sort of a little pop psychology and a little Judeo-Christian framework and whatever he means to you, whatever, it's just all vague. And, and you know, we, we get this, this false comfort, this false security to say that we're spiritual. That God doesn't exist, I'm sure of it. If God exists, he is the God revealed to us in the Bible. He is the source of justice and peace and joy and wisdom and truth. The religion that America is rejecting is empty religion. There's a poem by a man named Arthur Guterman, and he says this. The title of the poem is Our New Religion. And he said, first, dentistry was painless. 
then bicycles were chainless. Carriages were horseless. Laws became enforceless. Next, cookery was fireless. Telegraphy was wireless. Cigars were nicotineless and coffee caffeineless. Soon oranges were seedless, the putting greed was weedless, the college boy was hatless, the proper diet fatless. New motor roads are dustless, the latest steel is rustless, our tennis courts are sodless, our new religion godless. See, the religion in decline is a wishy-washy, powerless, man-centered, muddled mishmash. And it's good that it's in decline. Because anything man-centered will always ultimately fail. But the hope we have, church, is in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. We live because he lives. And so in Acts 17 and, and Athens where Paul's speaking is very much like America today. I mean, it was the intellectual and cultural center of the world. And, and what they had in Athens was everybody would stand up, and it wasn't the substance of what you said, it was the style. Everybody just wanted the likes of their day. So you'd literally have people on every corner and in every instance, and they'd stand up and they'd wax poetic about something, and everybody would go, that was remarkable. Did you hear that? It was like the Twitter of the day, right? Everybody wants followers and likes. And it didn't really matter if what you said made sense, if it had power, if it was true, because if it, if it, you know, if it played with people's emotions, if it tickled their affection, if it made them feel good, or, then they would, or just because everybody else was clapping, you know, they wouldn't even know. And so that's the world Paul wandered into. And, the, and I, don't, I don't want to get far off topic, but I want to make this point. This, this should be our strategy for evangelism. I just want to note that while we're speaking. But Paul could have said, he could have wandered into that and could have been like, okay, you guys, nothing what you said makes sense. I mean, you're all going to hell. You're all heretics. You're all idol worshipers. You don't know anything about anything. And all that would have been true, and Paul could have done that. I heard this said once about Paul's style of ministry. He takes people from what they know or what they don't know about God, and he takes them to what they need to know about God. So Paul wanders into this fray, wanders into this cultural melee of, of competing ideas, because that's what we are in America. You ask people all the time, even people in the church, well, faith is good, you know, you believe what you believe, and I believe what I believe, and I mean, that's not, logic doesn't work like that, F philosophy doesn't work like that. And so Paul says this, Paul then stood up, Acts 17, 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, and he said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. I mean, that's just an interesting, Paul's going, look, because if you talk to people and they're like, well, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Everybody says that. So Paul's going, okay, that's good. I, I see you there. So you're aware, you, you sense spiritual things. I see that you're spiritual. He doesn't go, you're, you, you're, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't beat them up. He meets them where they are. He's trying to, as Paul said before, I want to be all things to all people that I might win some. I've said before that as Christians, so many times we're more concerned with being right than righteous. More concerned with winning an argument than winning a soul. And so Paul's heart is he wants people to come to know the God he knows and loves. Because he's motivated by love for people. And so Paul says this, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So Paul's going, as I looked around, again, this is like America. This, was, this is like America. Paul's going, as I looked around, you're worshiping this, and you're worshiping this, and, you're, and everybody's worshiping something, and every, you know, it's like, a, and Paul's going, and now, and now here's this inscription here to an unknown God. And so Paul's going, you guys, you know, you have, you have sort of a sense of the divine. You know, I love when people say, oh, you know, I just worship the, the world. I worship creation. Like I see the ocean and the, the ocean's so beautiful. And I'm like, yeah, I, I, I know. Just go a step further though. Like who created that? Worship the creator, not the created. Like admire the created, but it points to a creator. Beauty's real. It should change us. 
Bible says the fool says in his heart there is no God. He said, from the, from the beginning of time until now, men are without excuse because all you got to do is look around. So Paul's going, I see here you have, you have an unknown God. So in other words, he's saying, you're, you're kind of defining God based on a little bit of what you might be read in the Bible, what you were taught in Sunday school, what Oprah said, what your friend thinks. Like, I don't. So Paul says this. So you're ignorant. And he's not saying that derisively. He's like, so you don't know, really, the very thing you worship, you have in you to worship and you have in you to consider spiritual things. But let me tell you, let me tell you who God is. Verse 24. This is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. And listen to this. It says, rather he himself give every, gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in the history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this, listen, God did this that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Paul's saying everything that you think, that you feel, you believe, if you would, if you would pursue him, He'll identify himself. He's not far. And then he says this, and I love this, and I've been repeating myself to this for a while now. Acts 17, verse 28. Print it up. Put it on your fridge. For in him we live, and we move, and we have our being. In him, in Jesus, we dwell. We live. We make our home, and as a result... We move out of that. We act as an overflow of, of, of where we live, as our overflow of our love in Christ. We live and we move when we have our being. It is our identity. The title of the message this morning is abide. I love that word, abide, to remain, to stay. That means that when the world comes against you, you remain. When everything in your life is trying to pull you away, you remain. It means it is your default. It is your home. It is where you live. It is your identity. You are in Christ. You will forever be in Christ. Nothing can take you out of Christ. To abide in the Lord means that we continually receive we believe and we trust that Jesus is everything we need. In John 15, we're given a promise. It's a promise from Jesus. And he says, abide in me. Live in me. Make your home in me. Abide in me and I in you. This means if we're to remain, to stay, to find our identity and our strength and our peace, our direction, our footing, to navigate our compass, to, to set Christ as our true north, then he will direct our lives and he will remain with us. See, for years and years to help children and probably adults is that WWJD, right? What would Jesus do in this situation? What would Jesus do in that situation? I'm not saying that that's not helpful. But it can reduce Christianity to a list of, to be a Christian means you do this, and it means you don't do this, and it's a behavior modification program. And we are to change the way we live. Paul talks about it, the way his life was changed, the way other lives are changed. Jesus says you'll know them by their love. But the way we live, the change in our lives is a result of an overflow of our love for Christ. There's a lot of things that can motivate behavior change. Guilt, compulsion. But Christianity is bigger than a change of behavior. It is a change of identity. It is a change of allegiance. It is theologically, we have been set free from our default self to then live for God. And you can see, and the best example to see that we are defaultly self-centered is you can look at kids, and you've got kids and they're beautiful little angels, right? 
And you think you take those two little kids and you put two toys down and the kids go, oh, look, two toys and there's two of us. Here, you take this one and I'll take that one. No, one kid goes, mine, and takes them both and looks at you and looks at the other kid like, what? Because our default is always self-centered. Our default is to always do the wrong thing. And God sets us free from our default to then live for Christ. To then live differently because we've become different. So it's really, who, who would Jesus be? Who is Christ? Who am I in him now? Because there's a lot of ways. There's a lot of reasons to just, I want to do the right thing. I want to do the right thing. Religion is, I want to do the right thing. And the religion that's dying is a whole bunch of people that are powerless to do the right thing because they're not in Christ. So they don't recognize the power of Christ. And they're like the Galatians. And Paul goes, you foolish Galatians, what began in the spirit, are you now trying to continue in the flesh? Like it's by grace you've been saved through faith and now figure it out. By grace you've been saved through faith, and now you're going to be left alone on your own, not by grace you've been saved through faith, and by grace every single day you wake up, and in God's grace and in his mercy and his power, you're sanctified, you're set apart, you're enabled to live for him by his grace. And so the religion that's dying is people going, I want to be better, I want to be better, I can't be better, nobody can be better, I give up. I mean, Paul was like a super Christian, right? If there was like the best Christian ever, it was Paul, right? Wrote most of the New Testament. And I love when people say that. And then it's like, so here's Paul in Romans 7. He's going, I keep doing the stuff I don't want to do. The stuff that I want to do, the stuff that I know it's good, I don't do that stuff. I mean, Paul, that doesn't sound very encouraging. Like, I continue, I recognize it's good. He's not questioning whether, he's going, I keep the stuff that I want to do, I can't even do it, and the stuff I don't want to do, I keep doing. And that's, that's the law. That's, that's, what, that's the law. That's the old system. That's, Paul's going, there's nothing I can do to set myself free from this. And that's what people think religion is. And that's what they're dismissing. Thank God that they're dismissing that. Because the end of Paul, when Paul wrestles with that, and he says, what a wretched man that I am, he doesn't just put a period and go home. Because that's what religion will do. Man, I'm wretched. People say, I go to the church, I felt really bad about myself, and I never went back to the church. Now, don't get me wrong. There's, there's a bad news has to come before the good news. So in order to recognize that you need a savior, you need to recognize you need to be saved. And if there's anything I know for sure that, and it's the result of sin, it's deeply theological is that I'm missing. There's something wrong with me. There's a longing nothing in this world will fulfill. No matter what goals I achieve, no matter how much I attain, no matter what, I'm always missing something without Christ. And then when, with Christ, there's a concrete, there's a difference where I am in him, I am with him. That makes all the difference. We're so, we're, we're so distracted by the noise that we miss the still small voice. And so Paul doesn't say, what a wretched man I am, there's no hope for me. He says, thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Paul's saying the difference with Christianity, the difference with Jesus Christ coming and living a perfect life and dying on the cross for us and then rising again is that now we get to partake in that. So in two weeks from now, we're going to have baptism. And baptism and baptism, there's, a, there's an identification. There's a symbolic death to self. You go back in the water. You are identifying with Jesus' death. And, and here's what people say, and, and I, I, don't, I, I hate this. I'm just going to say it. Don't tell anybody, but I, I don't like this. You ever go through sign and people are like, well, pick up your cross, right? Pick up your cross, follow him. I'm like, that doesn't really end there. That thought doesn't end there. That's not what, he, that's not what he's saying. Now, don't get me wrong. There is definitely a death to self that takes place. But it's an invitation, not just to death, but to a resurrected life. It is take up your cross and follow me. So when, we, when we're baptized, when we become a believer, we die to our old selves, and then we are risen again in Christ. We come out of the water alive. So yeah, yes, but it's not an invitation to death. It's an invitation to life. So yes, persevere. Yes, recognize it's the Christ in you that's going to continue to work until he comes. But don't you dare live, Christian, as somebody still in the grave. Yeah. 
Because Jesus didn't die so you and I can remain in the grave. He defeated death, and he defeated sin, and he gave us a resurrected life. We can have our very nature conformed into his image. That's what we're set free from. We're set free from the world, and we're set free to become more like Jesus. Paul says at Romans 12, too, and he's not simply talking about a behavior change. He's not simply talking about a system of living. He's talking about a way of becoming. Who to become and the power to become. Romans 12, 2, Paul says this, do not be conformed to this world. He's saying to be conformed means you're something, but you're trying to be like something else. It means you're really one thing, but you're, you're shaped, you're molded, you're moved, and you're kind of starting to look like another thing. It's sort of a distortion, right? And so Paul's saying, don't allow your friends and, and the world and culture, don't be shaped, don't be controlled, don't be defined by that. You know, they say that you hang around with people long enough and you become like them, right? Well, what happens if you hang around with Jesus long enough, Right? And so Paul's going, don't be, don't be like the world. Jesus didn't die for you and I so we could, people can look at us and not even know we're Christian. Paul's saying, don't, don't be conformed to the world. And then he says this, but instead, be transformed. Now to be transformed is to be something entirely different. To be transformed is, is you're not the same thing now. And so Paul says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that by testing, you will discern the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And if you want to know the will of God, if you want to follow Jesus instead of ask Jesus to follow you, then what, what molds you? What shapes you? What changes you? Because, you know, experiences, people say nature and nurture. There's a lot of things that can, that can shape you, but only Jesus Christ can remake you. Only he can take what was blind and give it sight, what was dead and bring it alive. What was in bondage and say, you're free now, walk in freedom. Live differently because you are different. Listen, the change precedes. The change comes before the behavior. And that's a big difference. It's the change we live out. If not, it's just religion. We're a bunch of people, people of God, rescued in Christ, changed and empowered to be entirely different people. We don't behave different to earn his love. We don't behave different to get to heaven. And if we distill Christianity into a list of do's and don'ts, we miss that. Because God has called us to be a people. You know, I, every, this is my most quoted, my most quoted thing in every sermon because it's powerful and I think it just has just such application. Lennon Ravenel, when he said, a sinning man stops praying and a praying man stops sinning. The principle is that if you just focus on, I don't want to do the wrong thing, I want to do the right thing, I don't want to do the wrong thing, I want to do the right thing, you are like the Galatians. You are stuck in a system of law. You are powerless to free yourself. You are an empty religion. But if you, and, and you don't pray, and you don't read the word, and, and the, the further you get into your sin and to yourself, the further you get from God, and it's, it gets to the point where you're so drowned out, you're so distracted, you feel like there's no way back. And let me just say that if you're here, that's a lie that Jesus invites all of us all the time, come to me, you who are weary, and I will give you rest for your souls. He never not extends that invitation. So no matter what you think, that's the truth. And Ravenhill, the, the, the counterpoint to that is a praying man stops sinning. If you hate your sin, fall deeper in love with Jesus. Spend more time in the word and in prayer with the people of God and the community of God. And the more you pray, the more you press in, God will work that out of you. If not, you, you, that's what Paul's expressing. Paul's going, look, I recognize, I identify the feeling of powerless to continue in the cycle of doing the wrong thing, but recognize that that's what Jesus came. That's why he came to set us free from that. I love Micah 6.8. It says this, 
And this is the kind of community we want to be, right? This is our, it says, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. I, I, I would have I reversed it, right? Walk humbly with God. So that indicates, you know, that it's like the old quote says that, you know, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, right? It is just an overwhelming sense of who he is and who we are in relation to him. So we walk, we, we walk with God, we follow him, we're humble, we're recognizing who he is, and as a result, we're kind, and we're just. You ask people in the world, say words to define Christian. Define a Christian, talk to a non-Christian. Then we're going to say hypocrite, arrogant, judgmental. And you can get defensive about that, or you can stop and be like, am I like that sometimes? I don't want to be. In Philippians 2.13, Paul says this, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. It's God that's going to do it. we got to let him. Most of the time, our job is to just trust and believe. Just trust and believe. Just actually believe Jesus is who he claimed to be. Just trust in him actively in everyday life and watch him work it out. Galatians 3, 26, 28 gives insight to the phrase in Christ and what it means. It says, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are one in Christ Jesus. He's speaking to the Christians in Galatia. He's reminding them in their new identity. He's not saying that you don't have differences. He's not saying that they're not ethnic or cultural differences. He's saying those things are now secondary. That's not what defines you. Your political affiliation, your nationality, those may be part of you, but that's not what defines you. Paul's saying what defines you is your identity in Christ. What makes you brothers and sisters is your identity in Christ, is what God has done in your life and what he wants to do through your life. I mean, if God would ask me and be like, here's my plan to reach the world. I'm going to use people. I would be like, I don't know. You might want to think of something else. <laughs> like, do you know people? Have you seen people? Didn't you wipe out, like, right? Is there a plan B? Just think of that. See, I've said before, Jesus didn't just make disciples. We're not just all in this church called to be disciples. That's not where it ends. Like, hey, trust in Jesus with your life and then just go on, just keep doing what you're doing. We're called to be disciples who make disciples. That means that for whatever reason, God chose me and you to be the vessel through which Jesus would work on this earth to reach people with the life-saving message of Jesus Christ, with the only hope the world has ever known, and we are hope bearers. That's what he did. How can you not be overwhelmed by that? How can you not be overwhelmed that God just didn't leave us, you know, didn't leave Paul and be like, Paul, you're a mess. Peter, you denied you knew me. You're out. Paul, the things you did to persecute me, you're out. But instead, he goes, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to change your heart so fundamentally that for the rest of your life, I'm going to change everything. And Paul, like Paul was an Ivy League guy, right? Paul was a boss. Paul literally at one point, he's like, you guys want to brag? Let me brag for a minute. You guys think you're good? I'm better. I have the background. I have the schooling. I've accomplished it all. Paul was a boss, literally. And Paul goes, you know what? Everything I've accomplished, everything I have, everything I've done, everything you think of me, every part of my reputation, Paul says, it's garbage. It has no value. It is worthless. He couldn't use stronger language compared, he says, to the value of knowing Jesus Christ and being found in him. Paul's going, not if it matters. 
I just want to be, and he identifies himself again and again in his writing as a slave, as a servant of Jesus Christ, as make no mistake, I get my marching orders from him. And we read that and we somehow think that maybe that's just for Paul or maybe it's just for pastors or I don't know. That's for all of us. That's for all of us. To recognize that whatever good things we do in this world, they don't compare to the good thing that Christ has done in us and wants to do through us. Colossians 3.3 says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Not for you have died and that's it, but for you have died and now you have a new life in Christ. The reward of the Christian life is that intimacy with God, that sin tarnished, and that Christ came to restore. In Exodus thirty-three fourteen, it says, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. In Psalm sixteen eleven, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. Who here doesn't want to have joy in their lives? And if you think joy is just related to some fleeting accomplishment or purchase or some moment of pleasure, you don't know what joy is. You've diminished what joy is. In your presence. Amen. There's fullness of joy. In Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. See, in his presence, we learn about who he is. I read a quote and it said, the problem with modernism is not simply that it failed us, but it carries within us the seeds of moral and spiritual destruction. There was a little cartoon I saw the other day, and it said, and then we entered the age of enlightenment where reason finally ruled over superstition. And then the other person in the cartoon says, and then what happened? And the response was genocide mostly. So you'll hear people will say, well, religion causes wars and people kill each other. And let me just say this. In the last 200 years alone, more people have been killed at the hands of atheistic regimes than in all of human history put together before that. So that argument cuts both ways. When God is removed, there will always be disaster. And that empty religion, that powerless religion, that political religion, that ideological religion, that divisive religion that will always die, that man-centered religion. God referred to himself as I am because in Hebrew, action and identity are together. You, you do what you do as a result of who you are. And we're going to see this. This is the whole principle in the New Testament. Well, we see this in the Old Testament in Hebrew. We see the foundational principle that you, you, what you do is who you are. And so in Hebrew, the context of God, he defines himself by who he is, which includes what he does. So Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide a sacrifice. Who he is and what he does is provider. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord will heal. Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is present. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is our peace. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is our banner. Jehovah Ra, the Lord is my shepherd. Jehovah said, uh, Sid, where's Wayne? Wayne? Wayne pronounced this. Sid Canoe, thank you. See? Sid Canoe. Sit in the canoe. Now I'm never going to forget that again. <laughs> thank you. The Lord is our righteousness. This is who God is, and it's what he does as a result of who he is. So Christianity is not simply a way to behave. It is a way to become. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It is not about behavior change only. It's about identity change. And we're called to walk with Jesus so we could learn from him. We need to take action, and our initial action must be to seek the presence of God, not because of what he can do for us, but because of what he can do in us. I've said before, God 
God will meet you in your circumstance. And sometimes he, and we can pray, and sometimes he will change your circumstance. More often than not, though, he will use your circumstance to bring attention to your condition. That's not to say he doesn't care. He does, but he cares more for your eternal destiny. He cares more to change your heart than to deliver you from a particular situation. So most of the time we get ourselves in trouble and we go, please God, rescue me. And he goes, I will, but I want to rescue you from you, not just from this situation. Will you trust me with your life? Ephesians 2, and you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power in the air, the spirit now at work. You weren't, you weren't mostly dead like on the princess bride. You were dead dead. <laughs> Among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... Verse 4, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus. We were dead and he gave us life. And not just on Sunday, and not just when you're in Bible study, but every day he's called us to seek his face, to seek his beauty. See, classical, the classical saw sin primary in relation to a holy God. In other words, when they sinned, when David sinned, the reason he was man after God's own heart, David's repentance, David just didn't feel bad for the result of his sin. And that's the problem we have in the church today oftentimes, is we sin and then we have an effect and we're sorry because we don't like the effect of our sin. But David was sorry because he sinned against the holy God. He recognized his need for a savior. We just want to be placated. We say we're sorry and we'll be forgiven so it'll make us feel a little better. You ever say to somebody, would you just forgive me? Almost like force, like, just forgive me. You're supposed to forgive me. You're a Christian, right? Because it'll make you feel better. It won't may maybe provide them any solace. Maybe it's an unresolved issue, and I'm not saying harbor unforgiveness. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying we can be self-centered in what we desire, right? So, God, I just want your forgiveness. Is, do you really? Do you want the new life that comes with that forgiveness? Because I've said before, and I think it was John Piper who said, grace is not just pardon from sin. It is power not to sin. It is freedom. I read this. Says the fact that the unculturalization, unculturalization of the evangelical world, meaning the more that church becomes like the world and its self-betrayal, its theo theologically emptied out faith, this is the reason the church has no answer to the crisis of character. And it is the reason why the postmodern world is not hearing a word from God. Because we've made it all about us when it should be all about him. And we've become lukewarm in our condition. In other words, when Christianity is just therapeutic and is all about us, we lose who he is. And that it, it tends to mean we do not love God for who he is, but we love God simply for what he can do for us. And that kind of religion will never ultimately transform, and that will never, gaze, and that will never translate into gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. See, if you stop for a moment and you recognize what God did for you, that he didn't wait for you to get it together. The Bible says while you're a sinner, while you're in your mess, that Christ died for you. He already did it. It's a gift. He's saying you put your trust, you put your faith in that, and that Jesus was who he claimed to be, and he proved it because he was resurrected from the dead, and God wouldn't raise a heretic, which gives authority to everything he preached and taught and lived. It is exclusive in human history. It is not simply mythology. It is not simply spiritual symbolism. In time and in space, Jesus Christ came, and he rose again, and he walked physically on this earth, and everybody that encountered him was radically changed. And that resurrection power is still ex in existence and available to us. Where is our awe? Where is our infatuation for Jesus? 
I think of a beautiful, that beautiful phrase, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. It reminds you when you're first in love, you know? You've been married for a little bit of time. Now it's like, I want me time. I need my time for me. You go do something out, right? But when you first, oh, just we time when you first, you know? Oh, some we time. We're going to spend every moment together and oh, everything we do. We do everything together. You can't get enough, right? That kind of, that's the kind of like, and that's what Jesus invites us into exclusively in Christianity. It's a relationship with God. It's not just identifying a set of facts and going, that's true, that's true, that's not true, that's true. I'm going to do this. I'm not going to do that. And Jesus is going, I want a relationship with you. In Luke 10, the famous story of Martha and Mary. I'm going to point some things out. Luke 10, verse 38 says, Now they were, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had her sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to the Lord and she said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Now I want to pause for a minute here. And I'll point out to you that Martha wasn't doing the wrong thing. I mean, how many of you ladies are, you know, like, you got people coming up. Jesus is coming over. Clean the place up. She's, Martha's like, hey. Jesus, like, not for nothing, but I'm doing this for you and your friends. Hey, you know, you see what I'm doing here? Making it nice food. You want to help me out a little bit? Because here's the thing. We can do all kind of good things, and we can be on guard, church, against the bad things. Don't do the bad things. But you know what we don't recognize, and it's more subtle, and it's even more, it's even more powerful, and it's hard to see in ministry sometimes, is we can do the right things without Jesus. And so I think of it this way as like a parent, right? I love my kids, and I'm so proud, and I want to brag when they do stuff. Man, my kid did that, my kid did that, and I'm so proud of them. And, and I believe God brags on us, right? I'm so proud of you, CFC, living for Jesus. And know, you, know what he, you know what I feel like sometimes he's saying? And, and you know what? I look at, again, my life with my kids is like, that's awesome. You guys doing all that stuff, but I miss you. All I want is for you to just spend time with me. You know what makes me the happiest when you say, hey, Dad, want to hang out? I'm proud of all the stuff you've done. Don't get me wrong. It's good stuff, but don't neglect your relationship with me. And I think that's what's happening here. And so he said, tell her to help me. And the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Because when we do religion, even when we're doing the right things, if we're hurried, if we're not in Christ, if we're not centered, if we don't see it as worship, we get frustrated and we get anxious and we get, a, we get this overwhelming sense it's never enough and it's never going to get done and it's chaotic and we're in the mess. And Jesus is going, there's a lot of things troubling you right now. And here's the solution. Here's the reason why. One thing is necessary, verse 42. One thing is essential. One thing is primary. One thing is fundamental. One thing is needed. Mary has chosen the good portion, and it will not be taken from her. Some translations say, Mary has chosen what is better. Martha, it's not that you're doing the wrong thing. It's just that the primary thing is that you just sit at my feet, that you just be in my presence. I want you to do the right thing, but I want you to do it with the right heart. I want you to do it as a result of having been with me. So people will say, like the Bible says, and they saw them and they recognized them as having been with Jesus. So it's good that we do things for God. And we, should have, we ought to keep doing things for God. But you know what? Don't neglect sitting at his feet. Don't forget that he, he desires, he's a jealous God. He pursues us. He wants a relationship with us, and it brings him joy, particularly when they're in the midst of struggle, because everybody says, amen, hallelujah, Jesus, when, you know, you get a raise. Amen, hallelujah, Jesus, when you get out of trouble. How about amen, hallelujah, Jesus, that you're with me in the middle of this struggle? that I can rely upon and I can be comforted by and I can gaze upon the beauty of your presence even in my mess. 
because that's who you are. Sitting at Jesus' feet means listening to Jesus, means lingering with Jesus. Don't be so rushed to get through your devotion. Take a phrase, meditate on it. Who cares if you read the Bible in a year, if you read it in two years, or whatever it is. In general, we've got to slow down. A decade's going to go by. Two decades, a lifetime's going to go by. Don't miss the opportunity to simply be with Jesus. Learn from him. Linger with him. Love and be loved by him. Ask the worship team to come up. I've said before that the Bible isn't just information, right? It's information about the character of God that should lead to transformation, that should change us, and then application, that it should affect how we live, it should affect how we behave, but only as an overflow of having been with Jesus. Don't neglect the primary thing. Mary is a picture for us sitting still at the feet of Jesus. I read this recently. It says, but serving must come after sitting. Serving comes after being served. Serving comes after being saved. And serving comes out of being saved. Serving must come after sitting. And so we study him to know him, to become like him. In Romans 6, Paul writes, Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And 1 John 3, verse 2 and 3 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So we ask and we seek and we dwell and we gaze upon and we learn from him.